Today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I've seen this over the years, and my feeling is that upwards of 90% of all PCOS patients can and should get pregnant naturally, is my feeling. I think because they've been mismanaged and because they've been told they have this condition, they are ripe, so to speak, for being moved into the IVF world unnecessarily. Like, oh, we know the issue. It's PCOS. You'll have no problem. We'll just send you to IVF. And again, they've been ignored, let's just say, as teenagers who were diagnosed. And then they were ignored when they wanted to get off the pill and say, no, no, you just got to stay on it. And now that it's time for them to get pregnant, oh, no problem. We'll just send you to IVF. Again, ignoring the issue. So that's my biggest pet peeve with PCOS. Like so much of this can be supported and managed and addressed without having to basically ignore the patient and then push them towards IVF. And so I I do think, I think there's some more complicated cases, which I do think maybe have to go that route, or they've been trying for so long and they're just tired of it. They just want to move towards IVF. And I get those circumstances, fine. But all too often, I think really, and I've seen it over and over, is like, if we just take ownership of it, if we make changes, if we've got a good plan to support these things, I've seen the majority high, upwards of 90% get pregnant naturally, which is what I expect for all of them and what I know to be true. Hello, hello, I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones. And today I talk with fertility expert, Dr. Mark Sklar, all about making babies. I asked him your questions regarding testing, age and fertility, sperm health, egg freezing, IVF, PCOS, fibroids, and more. He has been doing this for over 20 years and is so thorough and positive that I just can't wait for you to listen. Before we get started though, I wanna talk to you about an easy health habit that I use every single day, and that's AG1 by Athletic Greens. With one delicious scoop of AG1, I get 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to support my gut health, nervous system, immune system, energy, recovery, you know, all the things. It also comes in super convenient travel packs, which is so nice because I'm often on the go. And I love that you can use it if you eat keto or paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, it doesn't matter. And it contains less than a gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything, and to me, tastes pretty good. I call it my micro habit with big benefits. It's one thing I do every single day to take great care of myself, and you can too. So right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash root cause. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash root cause to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This podcast is created by Rupa Health, the best and easiest place for practitioners to order, track, and manage all of your labs in one convenient location. Now, let's start the show. Dr. Mark Sklar, welcome 
to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I am so excited to talk to you today. I'm thrilled to be here. This is going to be fun. It is, especially because you are really the first person I've had on to talk about all things fertility. And since we've talked before on Instagram, I'm an avid Instagram follower of you. I have, I mean, I've done fertility stuff, but it's really wonderful to learn from you because the way you break it down, your graphics, your explanations, your personality, it's just so nice. So I'm going to pick your brain and ask you all the things that I get asked and we at the Root Cause Medicine get asked and get some answers out of you. Yeah, well, that's what we're here for, right? And to give the listeners what they need and hopefully give them the information so they can make better decisions and hopefully get to the uh, pregnancy that they want. So I love talking about this stuff. This is great. Absolutely. Well, before we get started, for those who don't know who you are, give us a little background, who you are, what you do, what you stand for, and then we'll jump into the questions. Yeah, I am all about, I'm going to start here because I think this kind of goes back to why I'm doing this and why I've been doing this for so long. So I've been doing this for about 19, 20 years. And for me, it's really about empowering couples, empowering women to first and foremost, get real answers, which is the name of the podcast, Root Cause. So get to the root cause, which is what I always say about what's going on in your health and your fertility so that you can make better decisions to move forward so that they can be educated about their bodies. They can be educated about what they need, what they don't need, as opposed to just being told constantly, do this. And then we're kind of in this hamster wheel or this conveyor belt and just kind of following along what the next person told me to do. They could critically think about themselves and their bodies to make better choices for themselves. And I hope that's what it comes back to, because all too often in the fertility world, we think everything is, or we're told, excuse me, that everything is on the female. It's all about your eggs. And so then as a patient, you're going through and you're just picking this information. Well, it's all about the eggs and it's all about me. So I just need to find things that are going to help my eggs and help that to help me get pregnant. And they end up kind of just hodgepodging, putting together all these things. And I've literally had people come in with like a rolly cart of supplements, right? Like three layers. And they're like, well, here we go. And I'm like, well, who put you on this? Well, I did. So... <laughs> My goal really has evolved over the years, but now it's completely focused on really allowing couples and women to understand their bodies better, empower themselves to make better choices for themselves, and to get to the root issues of what's causing their fertility struggles so that they can actually have a plan of action moving forward that is customized to their situation. I love this, and I love it for a few different reasons. One of the things that you're such an advocate for when you talk about like education, empowering, testing, understanding your body, because when I was in private practice, I would have so many women. And even currently, I do fertility consulting even still. And I'm like, okay, like, when do you ovulate? Like, I don't know. Like, have you had any blood work done? And, you know, have you started even like your cholesterol? Oh, gosh, no, that's been never or that's been years. And I'm like, do you have a partner? Have they been worked up? They're like, oh, no, 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 no. This is it gets fertility. So it must be me. I'm the woman. I'm the one with the eggs. I'm like, no, no. (laughs) That's only 50% of the equation, right? It takes, (laughs) however you get that sperm, like we got to make sure it's healthy sperm. (laughs) Right, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) That's a big one. Right, it's a big, and I understand, I talk a lot on this podcast about some of these things I wish we learned in school, like young school, and I get fertility. Oh yeah. Maybe we can't learn, they don't want to teach us in high school, like how to optimize fertility, but at some point I wish (laughs) we all got a class or an email or a handbook. I'm like, all right, when you get there, When you get there, here are the things that you need to think about versus just trying to randomly 
pull it together or figure it out or yeah, whatever. No, absolutely. It's funny you say that. I wish we were taught different things. I say it all the time that we should be taught different things in high school because we're taught to one, be scared of having intercourse. You look at someone or touch them, they're going to get pregnant. All the misnomers. So we go into our adult life thinking, oh, it's going to be so easy to get pregnant. So whenever I want to, I just flip the switch and off we go. So I was having a conversation with my 13-year-old son, and he knows a lot more than his friends because of me. And so we were having this conversation, and I found myself going into this place of, well, you know, you really can't get someone pregnant all month long. Like, I was going down that road, and I see my wife looking at me, and she's like, "Mm -mm, mm -mm, (laughs) mm-mm, no, no, don't go there. (laughs) So I understand why we tell these young teenagers what we tell them, but we're misleading them so often. And at some point that should be corrected or cleared up for them because really we go into our young adult life thinking, yeah, no problem. Flip the switch. I can get pregnant. And that's not, unfortunately, that's just not always the case. And I think if we were better educated on this, and I think there's ways to do that without having to like tell kids they can have sex whenever they want, we would have better outcomes later on. And there's a lot of guilt and shame that goes with that when you think oh, yeah. the P goes in the V if that's the route you go and I can get pregnant at any time, then you go to get pregnant. And if you're six, seven, 12, 18 months in, you're like, what? Something's wrong with me. What's wrong with me? And it's like, oh, Holton, oh, bad education. Yeah. Yeah. And that actually continues on to everything's about something's being wrong with me. And that continues when we go into our OB's office. That continues when we go to the fertility clinic. That responsibility is constantly pushed back onto the woman, as opposed to other people taking responsibility for things that are totally their responsibility and their egos get in the way or whatever the circumstances are, they just think it's not their problem and they're pushing on. So we take this burden on and they're constantly told, well, whether they're telling themselves or someone else is telling them that, oh, there's something wrong with me, something wrong with my ovaries, something wrong with my eggs. And so we start believing this consciously, subconsciously. And what good does that do for us, right? Like it doesn't help in the bigger picture and in being able to even ourselves believe in our ability and believe that we have the power to make change to address whatever is there as well so that we can have different outcomes. So speaking of the bigger picture, do you have a... I'm sure you do. Like a speech, a basics. When you're meeting with a woman or a couple for the first time, whether they're in the start of their journey or in their, they're far along in their journey, where you're like, hey, look, here's some statistics on fertility, the length of time it takes to get pregnant, how important sperm is compared to eggs, how age is a factor. Like, do you kind of have a spiel that you go through when you first meet somebody? 100%. Would you like it? <laughs> yes, I would. <laughs> we all would. <laughs> so... We think that we can get pregnant very, very easily. But in terms of animals that reproduce, we are not the most efficient at it. And at our best, when we're in our late teens, early 20s, we have at most a 25 to 30% chance of conception every cycle. So that's not really that high if we think about it. And so if we're thinking about that, we're like, okay, we need at least four consecutive cycles of trying to make it make sense and round it out that we've got about a hundred percent chance. And we like to bump that up to six months so it's not stressful. So I think if we're trying for about six months, then I think we've given ourselves initially a fair understanding and time of did we give it a good chance. Now the general guideline is under 35, 
a year of trying, over 35, six months of trying before you really need to kind of seek out additional support and attention. But I always tell everybody, if you know inside that there's something going on or you have this gut feeling or you've had a history of some issues, don't wait for those markers. Get help sooner rather than later. Like Just because those are arbitrary numbers doesn't mean you have to wait for them if you know that you want additional support. So go seek that out sooner rather than later. But after, as we age, those numbers, those chances only go down over time. So we have to take that into account as we're starting our family planning, as we're starting to make some of these decisions and decide how we're going to go about this. Some of that family planning piece is also about how many children do we want and in what time frame that makes that, I don't want to say those are difficult discussions. Those just add to the complexity of how we make some of our decisions. But in all circumstances, if we think about things simply, basically, I know that we put all the pressure on the woman in the relationship and make it seem like it's 100%, but really it's a 50-50. And I don't say that just because it takes two to tango. I'm saying that because statistically, that's what it shows. It's about 40% female-related, 40% male, and then another 15 to 20% both. So that's how we get to 50-50. But even if it's 40-40, that's still a fair amount on both sides of the equation. And so the more information we have up front, the better off we are going to be in making some of those decisions and being able to understand what our options are from the get-go. So hands down, I'm typically suggesting to everybody is we need to have as much information up front, which comes back to the testing piece. And so the three main key pieces involved in testing, and, and certainly we can go well beyond that once we have these foundational pieces, is we need to make sure that the fallopian tubes are open. So we need to have an HSG or there's other ways to do that now. There's the bubble test with more water versus dye. But essentially, we need to verify if the tubes are open. And then we need to make sure that we've got enough sperm and good quality sperm to meet the egg and fertilize the egg and do what we need to do. So we always have to have a semen analysis. And you alluded to it earlier, but I see this over and over how many times I have a conversation and someone's been trying for a year or two or even five. And I say, well, do we have a semen analysis? No, we've never done it. Like We need that information. You're putting all this pressure on yourself and you don't even know if that's a valid thing to do. So we want to do those things. And then I always start with a full hormone panel, full lab work, because as you said, most people haven't had labs done. So we want to look at all the hormones. We want to look at all your thyroid labs, cholesterol, iron levels. Like We just want to get everything done. And I always start on that side on the female. And then they say, well, why not doing those things for the man? Well, I will, but first we start with the sperm. So if the sperm look healthy and everything's fine there, if there's some other health-related issues with the man, then we'll start to go down that road as well. But I believe that the sperm are a reflection and an indicator for a man's overall health. So that's why we start there, because everything looks good, then odds are most things are probably going to be okay moving forward. But if things aren't good, that's going to pass down to the sperm. The quality is going to be impacted. And so I can reverse that and go the other way. So that in terms of having all that information is really important. Aside from that, yeah, we do need to talk about age. But I always tell everybody, my rule of thumb is age is the only thing you can change. So we want to understand your age and we want to know what it is in the bigger picture of time frame and your family planning. But I don't make a lot of my decisions when it comes to care off of age. Only really when we have to have a conversation about, 
do we need to take other steps? Do we need to start looking at IVF or IUI? And how many children do you want? And so forth. There's a lot of emphasis and stress put on age. And again, there's nothing we can do about it. If we want to start talking about your cellular age and how we can impact that, well, that's a different conversation. But if we're just talking about how long you've been on this earth, that doesn't hold a lot of weight for me personally. I know it does in the fertility world overall, but it doesn't hold a lot of weight for me unless, again, we're having this conversation. Well, I want to have four kids and I'm 35 and how are we going to plan for that? And all of that has to be considered as we're having those conversations. And I hope everyone who's listening is literally pen in hand taking notes because you have just said a lot of amazing gold nuggets and and all of the, everything that you said, are nothing is, how do I want to phrase this, weird or woo-woo? Like it's very commonly accepted. Unfortunately, it's not always done right away. Like, right, we've all had patients that have come in and said, I've never been worked up or unfortunately I've had some miscarriages and because I haven't hit three miscarriages yet, I'm still not worked up or... I, no, I've never had an ultrasound or no, my partner has never had a semen analysis, but we've been trying for a year or two years. I mean, we've all, our colleagues have heard these stories and I just find it so disappointing, but fascinating also because I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much we can do. And when you say cellular age versus actual age, for those who don't know what that means, you, and we all, we've all met, you might be one of these people where you're young for your age, but we mean it literally, like your cells are really robust and really healthy and your eggs are going to reflect that. Even if you're, I'm 45, but I'm hoping a young 45 is supposed we've all met somebody who's 30 and we're like, oh gosh, right? <laughs> I thought they were in their 40s, be male or female, it doesn't really matter, just their life choices or et cetera, et cetera, I have it. So this is good. We're going to, I want to unpack all of this sort of in order. I want to start with the tubes, then we'll go into testing and then we'll kind of go into Semen health, because because I love that you said like sort of his semen sperm health is going to be a reflection of him. Yeah, absolutely. Overall. So let's start with tubes, because I think this is probably one a lot of women know to go to hormones because it's all over social media and they understand the concept of hormones, but not a lot understand the anatomical importance of fertility as well. So can you explain what, what is an HSG? Sure. So an HSG is often referred to when you're looking online or on social media, you, you might even hear about it called the dye test. And so this is when they're taking dye and injecting it into the uterus, but specifically to push out into the fallopian tubes. And simultaneously, they're taking pictures to see how that's spreading through to make sure that the fallopian tubes are open. And the fallopian tubes are really important because that's where the egg and sperm meet. And if we've heard of an ectopic pregnancy or someone having an ectopic pregnancy, it's because the sperm and egg met in the tube, but never made its way into the uterus and implanted somewhere in the tube. And that's dangerous on multiple levels. And we don't want that to happen. Now it can happen on any aspect of that, which is why we want the tube to be open. One of the benefits of an HSG is that if there's some mucus or something kind of gunking up and not allowing that path to be clear and open, if it's just minor, then often that procedure actually opens that up and clears the path. It's also why we'll hear of couples saying, oh yeah, I had my HSG and that next month I was pregnant. So there is that. And, and typically we see that benefit for about two or three cycles after an HSG. But that's why an HSG is important because the tubes have to catch the egg and allow it to travel through the fallopian tube. And that's where that sperm is going to meet those good ones, and then make its way into the uterus. So we want to make sure that's open. I have not personally experienced it, but I was there when my wife went through it. And it's not the most comfortable of procedures. 
And for some, depending on if there's issues with the anatomy, it could be more uncomfortable, but it's important because we want to understand and we want to know what's going on there. Because if we don't have open tubes, then it changes dramatically what our options are in terms of how we can move forward. When we're looking at fertility, we have either natural conception, the old-fashioned way at home, we have IUI, which is intrauterine insemination, or we have IVF. For IUI or natural conception, we need the fallopian tubes. So if those are not viable for whatever reason, then really we start looking only at IVF as our primary mode of conception. And so that's an important thing because you also don't want to waste your time for years and years and then find out later, oh my God, this was an issue. Now, I do hear questions often, well, can I open my fallopian tubes? And that's a tricky situation. It depends on the circumstances. Like I said, if there's a little bit of mucus or something there, then typically, yes. If it's a profound blockage of some sort, there are some procedures that can open them up, but I don't want to give anybody any false hope because often what happens is it's only open temporarily. And that could be different for everybody. For some person, it could literally be days or weeks. And for others, it could be months. And it's not they're not the most stable of procedures long-term to see that benefit. And we have to remember that our fallopian tubes are probably the diameter of our like two or three strands of hair. I mean, they're small. So they're very sensitive and volatile. Now, I will say if you're doing the procedure and they see a kink of some sort, now sometimes that's actually caused by the procedure because of the pressure of the dye can cause that sort of muscles to spasm, the tissue to spasm. And so it doesn't always mean that it's blocked and we might unfortunately have to repeat it at some future time if we need to. It just depends on what we see. Since we're speaking about imaging, what about polyps and fibroids? I do get that question a lot as well. I've been told I have a fibroid. I've been told I have a polyp. How will that impact fertility or does it? Yeah. So fibroids really depend on multiple factors, size, the location, not just the location outside the uterus or inside the uterus, but also where on the uterus or inside the uterus is it? For the most part, I don't find that fibroids have a huge impact unless they are extremely large and obviously in a location that is going to hinder implantation of some sort. But I've had many, many women with large grapefruit size fibroids get pregnant, have a healthy pregnancy. So it's so much about the location that's going to be really important. And sometimes we do have to have those removed or partially removed. Now, I will say for everybody who's dealing with fibroids or for that matter, even endometriosis, if you are going to have a procedure done, you want to make sure you have a surgeon who is very mindful of preserving your fertility. Because I've seen too many issues come up where someone has had a procedure, they were told they needed to do it, the doctor was not thinking about preserving fertility. Their job was like, I just need to get this out and move on to their next patient. And they made, they caused more harm than good. So you really want to make sure that you've got the right person working on it and understands that maybe it's okay to leave some there to preserve the fertility versus damaging the tissue even more and the organs a little bit more. So I will say that polyps are basically like little skin tags inside the uterus. So even though they're small, they may, depending on their location, be an issue because if they're in a spot where implantation would normally happen, that's not ideal. They also could be a contributing factor to spotting. So spotting before you bleed. And so we get concerned and, and confused, like, why am I spotting? And where is this coming from? 
that could be coming from polyps. Most of the time, they do recommend having them removed. For me, I'm on the fence about it. I think it just depends on the circumstances and what's been going on. I had a patient who was, we were working at, we just started working on her fertility and she came in and said, I'm starting to spot with sex. And so I started a speculum. Sure enough, she had a polyp in the, like like a wine cork. On the cervix? In a wine bottle. I mean, it, it, right on the cervix, right, right in the os, right in the opening, right? So I was like, oh, well, you literally, the door is closed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you, have a, you have a wine cork in there. So I actually went to remove it. I could not for the life of me remove it. And in the state that I'm in with my license, it falls under my scope of practice, but I couldn't remove it. Referred her to a really good gyne surgeon friend of mine. And the gyne surgeon called me afterwards thinking it was just an in-office, simple in-office procedure. And she said, Carrie, you're not going to believe this. I couldn't remove it either. I'm referring her for surgery. We're going to go up there and remove this polyp. She ended up having nine, I think I want to say nine, seven or nine polyps all the way up her cervix into her uterus. And so she said, I popped wow. all of them out. She looks great. Let's keep going. Three months later, patient's back in my office. She called me. I'm having spotting with sex again. I said, don't see me. <laughs> Go to the gyne surgeon. <laughs> and so she ended up having, they all grew back that quickly. She oh ended Lord. up having them removed and, this, and then immediately got pregnant. And so that next month, and so I always think of that location, 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 right? It's It was all the way up, right in the, in the opening, in the hole, the os, and then all the way up into the cervix. And That's unfortunate. Took two tries. It took two removals. Yeah. Now, obviously, so then she got pregnant and I said to her, I know you want to work on why. I know you want to work on what caused these to grow and then grow quickly, but now you're pregnant. So there's we have to wait, right? We have to wait. But I know we're going, uh, you're, people are going to ask, why? Well, I've been told I have a polyp. I've been told I have a fibroid. So this is location, location, location. Location, <laughs> location, location. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned the os being closed. I was just talking to someone who has, she's been told probably the tightest cervix any of her doctors have ever seen. Oh, wow. And we think that's contributing to her oh. inability to get pregnant, that it's yeah. so tight that nothing can get through regardless of when it is. They can't even get in the, the smallest in diameter catheter oh. to get in. Wow. So to me, that's a significant finding. And those are things that we need to start to pay attention. So anatomy is a big part of this as well and understanding our anatomy and, and how it's positioned or how it is. And we're all unique. So we have our different circumstances. Absolutely. All right. So let's then move on to actual testing. You have a woman or that comes in and you say to her, what lab work have you ever had done? And she says, none, I, none. And I'm looking to get pregnant. Where do you start? So we for sure start with her fertility hormones. And by that, I mean, FSH follicle stimulating hormone, LH luteinizing hormone, estradiol, also known as E2. And then we want to do AMH anti-malarian hormone. I always run their androgens, testosterone, DHEA, prolactin sex hormone binding globulin. So those are the foundational kind of fertility hormones that we run. And those should be run on cycle day two, three, or four of a woman's cycle. All of them. Yeah, they all don't have to be, but it's easier just to do all of those at the same time. I do, I will get this pushback sometimes like, oh, so-and-so said my AMH can be done anytime in the cycle. And I'm like, well, it can, but I find it to be the most accurate done at cycle day two, three, or four. So it's not like it can't be done at other times. Now, other hormones also can be done at other times, but they're not, the information you're getting is not going to be beneficial for fertility. So FSH and LH, just last week I have, and this happens all the time, everybody, like at your OBGYN office or at your fertility clinic, they will just, you walk in, they're just going to run your labs, regardless of where you are in your cycle. 
And it's not like it doesn't give information, but it doesn't give you accurate information for your fertility. So for what you're looking for. So I really want to encourage everyone to just get it done at the right time of the cycle and to get those done there. And then on top of that, I typically always add full CBC, metabolic panel, A1C, full thyroid panel with antibodies and all of that, vitamin D, homocysteine, iron levels, maybe I missed something. But in general, like we're trying to get as much information as we can get, for sure. And even if someone's had it done before, if it's not up to date, if it's not within, for sure in the last year, but depending on some of them, maybe even shorter time frame, we want to rerun them. We just want to see what the history is and get a baseline for where you are today and also have the history of where you've been. And you know me, I am thrilled at how thorough you are because many a time a patient would come in and they'd go, oh no, I I had a full hormone workup. I'm like, what was in your full hormone workup? And they're like, it's at CBC, which is complete blood count, red and white blood cells, metabolic panel, so glucose, liver enzymes, calcium, electrolytes, a few other things, and cholesterol. And they're like, see, I get it. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> well, that's no, their definition and mine are a little different. <laughs> We're going to be a lot more comprehensive. <laughs> that's funny because you get that. And when I say, well, when I hear the same thing, I say, well, tell me what it is that you've had or show me what you've had. I see the opposite. I see nothing else other than AMH and maybe estradiol and PSH or something like that. And they're like, yes, I've had it all. I'm like, mm, it's not so much. <laughs> sort of. So sort of. comprehensive is a broad meeting. <laughs> <laughs> right. Depends on who's looking at them. <laughs> right. Exactly. I had a patient who called me in tears. She said, oh, my OBGYN ran my progesterone and it's near zero. She's looking to get pregnant. It's near zero. Tears. I must not ovulate. I have no progesterone. I said, when did you get your progesterone drawn? She said, well, my appointment was last week on a Thursday. I was like, no, I'm I mean, like, where in your cycle were you? She said, well, I was bleeding. It was, I was on my period. I was like, well, it's supposed, supposed to be zero. zero. <laughs> yeah. Or close to zero. Yeah. It's dang near zero at that. It's, a, it's supposed to be that. Actually. Just like to your point, told me nothing about her actual progesterone level. She was exactly where she's supposed to be for the time of her cycle on her period. But that's not the answer she was looking for. She wanted to know, is your progesterone in the healthy range in the luteal phase? So this, okay. This, I love this. And you know, people are taking notes or like, never heard of that, never heard of that. And I didn't mention progesterone, by the way. But yes, absolutely. We want to run progesterone. Oh, yeah. And you should run it in the beginning of your cycle if you want to just confirm that it's low and then seven days post-ovulation. Yeah. And so two of those I want to touch on quickly, one androgens and things like PCOS. And then the other thing is prolactin. I think prolactin is often forgotten because mm -hmm. women say, well, I'm not breastfeeding. Prolactin is our prolactation hormone. So they get very confused when you run a prolactin. Why are they running a prolactin? I'm not breastfeeding. Ooh, Dr. Mark is going to explain. <laughs> you want your prolactin tested. And I, it's really remarkable, actually, how often I find it to be elevated, unfortunately. So yes, if it's elevated or in a normal situation when you're producing uh, breast milk for lactation purposes, it should be elevated. But outside of those that circumstance, it really should be in a normal range, high teens, let's just say, or mid-teens. And that can actually be an indicator of a bigger issue if it is elevated with your pituitary, your prolactin is produced there. And often, I can't say always, but if it is elevated, we would rerun the test or I would rerun the test just to confirm it. And the two points that I'll tell everybody who's listening, so you don't have to redo it unnecessarily, just do this the first time, is uh, fast for it. And make sure you haven't had intercourse within a couple of days or specifically orgasm within a couple of days. Those two variables can impact your levels. And so you might get a false 
high reading, and then when we resend you back. So typically, if we do get a high reading, then we'll send them back for another one just to confirm. If it is elevated, then I would typically refer them to their endocrinologist just to rule out if there's a small cyst on the pituitary that could be leading to it. I find it that to be the case about 50% of the time. The other 50%, they don't see anything and we're not sure why it's elevated and we got to do some digging. But I find so much, which is kind of a, a little diversion here in terms of, but pertinent to the labs, I find so much that pituitary and hypothalamus are such a crux to what we're dealing with in the fertility world. And so many of these important hormones are they are come from there and your FSH, your LH, TSH, prolactin, these are all crucial hormones. And if we're if there's something going on with our pituitary, it can impact all of those hormones. So to me, this is a sign. If I see prolactin elevated, I um, okay, what's going on? Let's look deeper. Also, if we might see multiple of these markers be elevated or low, whatever, off, yeah, depending on which one we're talking about then that would be another reason to look a little bit deeper at those glands as well. One of the things I'm noticing more, and you, I'm curious if you're noticing it too, is head trauma is not my area of interest at all. I'm not an expert in head trauma or traumatic brain injury, but as I mention it, because the hypothalamus and pituitary are located in the brain. In the brain, yeah. And then I've had a number of women go, oh my gosh, ever since my car accident, I hit my head or this thing happened or... I noticed that has affected my hormones. Whether or not fertility was the outcome they were looking for, I have seen it in my comments and DMs of women putting two and two together of, I didn't realize when I whacked my head that hard and was told I got a concussion, subsequently had started having some hormone issues. Yeah, I, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I have not heard that that frequently, but I'm going to pry a little bit more now. <laughs> about that. Yeah. Thanks yeah. to social yeah. media. I just thanks <laughs> the comments in the DMs tell me. <laughs> Absolutely. No, but it makes a lot of it makes a lot of sense. I also see like stress in the world we live in. Yeah. To me is oh, a, a huge variable and impacts, you know, those glands tremendously. So yeah. How often are you seeing uh PCOS? All the time. Yeah. That was my next question. That's exactly why I run the androgens routinely for everybody, regardless of symptomology. I just run them because of how frequently I see them. And it's not so much the overt, typical textbook PCOS pattern that we're going to miss. We're not going to miss that. That's probably already been diagnosed for the most part. I mean, sometimes it's not, but for the most part it is. It just has, it's been mismanaged usually, but it's that atypical form of PCOS or forms and someone just has a mild case or that's what I'm trying to catch because often that is just missed. And so that's why I run I run those often. But weekly, we, we're managing PCOS with a new couple or something like that. Okay. All right. And then is there any, I, I truly don't know this answer. Is there data, if they're in that group of PCOS, how does that change things with fertility for you and your team and them? Or does it? Yeah. To me, my I've seen this over the years and, and my feeling is that Upwards of 90% of all PCOS patients can and should get pregnant naturally, is my feeling. I think because they've been mismanaged and because they've been told they have this condition, they are ripe, so to speak, for being moved into the IVF world unnecessarily. Like, oh, we know the issue. It's PCOS. You'll have no problem. We'll just send you to IVF. And again, they've been ignored, let's just say, as teenagers who were diagnosed. And then they were ignored when they wanted to get off the pill and say, no, no, you just got to stay on it. And now that it's time for them to get pregnant, oh, no problem. We'll just send you to IVF, again, ignoring the issue. So 
that's my biggest pet peeve with PCOS. Like so much of this can be supported and managed and addressed without having to basically ignore the patient and then push them towards IVF. And so I, I do think, I think there's some more complicated cases, which I do think maybe have to go that route, or they've been trying for so long and they're just tired of it. They just want to move towards IVF. And I get those circumstances, fine. But all too often, I think really, and I've seen it over and over, is like, if we just take ownership of it, if we make changes, if we've got a good plan to support these things, I've seen the majority, a high upwards of 90% get pregnant naturally, which is what I expect for all of them and what I know to be true, which is why I want to push for that. I want to push for them to get that support that they need. Well, here, here to that. Ninety <laughs> percent. That's a great stat. <laughs> yeah, it's possible yeah. for sure. I love that. All right. Well, all right. So ovulation. So I'm going to round out testing with the basics, making sure somebody's ovulating. Mm-hmm. How do you educate on that for someone? It's it goes back to the very start of our conversation of the number of women who just don't know and they just think they can get pregnant at any time of their cycle. And I had a friend who was several months trying to get pregnant. And finally, I said, well, when do you, what day of the month do you ovulate? I don't know. The books tell me day 14. Turned out she was ovulating on day like 11, but they were waiting and saving to have sex day 13, 14. And by then she'd obviously missed the boat because she was an early ovulator. When she figured that out, she got pregnant. Surprise. (laughs) Yeah. That's all about tracking, right? Like we've got to track. I want to say this thought before I forget about it because it pertains to ovulation is I'm a big proponent of having regular sex, have it regular, have it as often as you guys like. The caveat to that will be if we know there's some sort of major sperm quality issue, male factor issue. But I don't like the only time couples are having sex to be at ovulation. I mean, so many reasons. (laughs) But the main one is sperm regenerate every 24 hours. You've got sperm kind of the bullets in the chamber and hasn't been used. It's going to get stale after a while. It's not the same quality. So we don't want the first time he's ejaculated in whatever amount of weeks to be at ovulation. So I always like to kind of widen my window in my fertile window, but it has to, but to do that, we have to know when we're ovulating, which comes back to tracking. And so for tracking purposes, yes, we start with how long is your cycle? If it's 28 days, typically you're probably ovulating somewhere between 13 to 15, but it doesn't have to be the case for everybody, as you just mentioned. And so that's basically where we start, but you want to track it and you want to understand. And so I don't want to say the easy way, but the more like talked about natural way of tracking is with basal temperature, which is both good and bad, but it can give you a lot of information. The problem with it is it takes some effort. It takes some consistency. And you're not going to really learn your pattern with it for two, three, four cycles because you've got to learn to see and track. And there's a learning curve to understanding the process and getting that information. The more straightforward way to do that is doing some sort of ovulation predictor kit or OPK. And those are those theoretical cheap sticks at the drugstore that you can get and pee on and it tells you yes or no or lights up or whichever one they, they are. But that's checking your LH, your luteinizing hormone, primarily. Some of them, the ones that maybe are a little bit more expensive and track a little bit more, will also be tracking your estrogen levels leading up to it. And so those just kind of help you. They're telling you, okay, estrogen's rising, we're getting closer, and then we get that big smiley face or positive, and that's when that LH goes up. And that's and then when that happens, you're releasing your egg within about 36 hours. Now, that doesn't mean 
always 36 hours later. It could be you're releasing it in an hour or you're releasing it in 36 or you've got a window of time. And so a lot of that also then comes back to our symptomology, cervical mucus. Do we have sensations of releasing the egg? Some women will feel the release from their ovaries and some will not. We can check the position of our cervix and if it's open, which takes some practice as well, but basically you can do that. Some women will say, yeah, I'll spot a little bit at ovulation or I will get breast tenderness or I'll get it right after. So we want to pay attention and just track your symptoms because as we've been kind of preaching, we're all different and unique and we need to understand what our patterns are and what our body's telling us. But you can line those up. And the beautiful thing, there's a lot of apps that help you do that. So you're just tracking it with one thing, you put in your symptoms and it will tell you, here you go. This is when you've ovulated. But all I want from couples is to know roughly, like as long as you know within a few days of where you're ovulating, I think that's sufficient enough because then we just widen that window, like I was saying earlier. So then if someone is going to be ovulating on cycle day 14, for instance, we'll say, okay, I want you to start on cycle day nine or 10, and you're going to go to cycle day 16 or 17, and every other day, have intercourse. The only question you need to ask yourself is, did you or didn't you yesterday? And that's it. And then you're just finishing that window. And that should be optimal and should be plenty of time for the sperm to get to where they need to go and fertilize the egg. And I love how you laid out the timeline too of how some of these things happened. I was just at a conference and I was talking to a practitioner. Fertility is, a, hormones is not her thing. It's not what she was trained in. She's looking to get to hormones. And she said, she said, I have a fertility patient who's doing all this tracking and everything. And the patient is freaking out because the cervical mucus, the stretchy mucus, the positive LH and the temperature surge aren't happening on the same day. And I was like, oh, they're not Oh, no, they're sequential. <laughs> they don't happen on this day. Right. <laughs> said, no, she just, that's, let me explain how it works. And she said, this is not my area of training. So this is great to know. I thought they all had to, like you have stretchy mucus and a positive LH and a, your basal body temperature would shoot up within all in the same, on Wednesday, it would all happen. Oh, sometimes you see that, but Sometimes, you know. yeah. Yeah. I said, but no, generally it's a little bit sequential. So she's probably, there's probably nothing wrong with her. We'll work, you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. I love that you said that. That's great. All right. Now let's switch to men. We have to, we have to talk about the other 50% of this equation here, the sperm. 100%. What are you seeing in all, in the years of practice? What are you seeing with sperm counts? Have you, have you seen them getting worse, better, staying about the same? Worse. Yeah. Only, unfortunately, only getting worse. When I see high numbers, I'm actually typically like, whoa, wow, this is new. <laughs> what happened here? <laughs> but yeah, so they're only going down, unfortunately. And, and I think perspective for everyone to hear is this is our public service announcement for men to get checked and be aware of themselves. So please, if you're listening alone and you want to share this information with your partner who's reluctant to get tested and understand what's going on, it's really a straightforward procedure for everybody. And there is no other test, by the way, for all the men listening, there's no other test that I know of where you actually could have some pleasure at the same time. So like, it's really not the end of the world. You've done this on your own many times, I probably promise. Now you just got to collect it in a cup. So let's not make that big of a deal about it other than your egos might be hurt a little bit if you get results back and that might not be something you want to hear. But we need to get these... Tested. And the perspective I want to give to everybody is, I think about 50 years ago, what was considered normal in sperm count concentration was 100 million or more. That number has gone down over the years. And then it was 50 million. Now what's considered normal is 
15 million. So for perspective, right, we're going from 100 million to 15 million as what's considered normal. And I think there's a couple of reasons why we're seeing that number being the number that we see. I think one of them is because we are seeing numbers go down and they're trying to manage that and say, well, we're not really seeing 100 or 50 million very regularly. How can we keep it here? So that's one aspect of it. I also think because of insemination and IVF, our perspective of what we need for those procedures has changed. And so as a result, what we need to be considered normal is a byproduct of how much we really need for those procedures. And so that's where we get that number. But 15 million is the bare minimum that we should be striving for. And we always want to push for much, much more when we're looking at the count, the amount of sperm that someone's producing. And then the other variables that we track are percentages off of that number, which is why that number is so important. And I think some another piece that we all need to hear as well is that the majority of sperm that men produce are abnormal, and that's considered normal, right? So like, if you get this back and there's all, I can't believe 50% of my sperm don't swim well. Well, that's normal. So (laughs) like, they're all not going to be perfect swimmers, right? And so the perspective of that, I think, is important. And the other piece of that is understanding is like, this should be used as another biomarker for yourself, for your health, right? Like, you do a semen analysis, everything looks good, great. You should also be running your normal labs annually and they can support and benefit one another. And I think that's an important piece to this. But the men really have got to step up. I can't tell you how often I hear, well, my husband didn't want to do it. He's been reluctant to do it. My partner said, no, he's not ready to do it. Like, I don't, it's really, it's not that big of a deal. And for how, for all the other procedures and things that, women have to go through, this is like a drop in the bucket. Uh, literally. <laughs> literally a drop in the bucket. Yeah. Like you might think you produce a lot of semen. You really don't. <laughs> it's, it's not going to fill up that cup. I promise. <laughs> and it's amazing what you find out and on in the end can save you a lot of money. I mean, I, yeah. I know you have these stories as well. I have stories of women who did their male would refuse or drag their feet. They spent so much money on with me on supplements, on diet, on massages, on acupuncture, on get all the things and all the, and then finally he would go get a semen analysis. And unfortunately it was, I mean, I hate to say it, it was him. The percentage leaned in his favor. I would hear this all the time. And I'm like, you guys are out so much money when I would wish you would have just a year ago, two years ago, whatever it was, just both of you at the same time, get the basics. And then we would have known. It's one of the more frustrating things that I have to deal with. And I have many stories like you do of this, but one right now that comes to mind where there's a woman in my program and she's now, they've been trying for so long. And I've this whole time, we've been like, I think it's your husband. And now they're at IVF and each round, the embryo, they don't end up with as many embryos as they should have. And then they send the one embryo for testing that's left and it's abnormal. And every time she sends me the report, I'm like, it's your husband. This, I'm telling you what I can see and how all of this is progressing. I feel really strongly that this is your husband. And he not only want, doesn't want to get tested, he doesn't want to do anything to even try to improve his sperm. It's unfortunate. It's frustrating for her, frustrating for me, but this is real life. This is what happens. And I wish to the, well, to everyone listening, but especially men, Sperm are really fragile, but they're also, and they're very dramatic, but they're also very easy 
to improve, like very easy to improve. There's a lot you can do to improve a a lot of those numbers that doesn't require boatloads of money and boatloads of things. I mean, I would even just simple things. I had a a couple where he'd done a seam analysis. We were working on some things and he decided to pick up downhill racing on a bike, (laughs) on a bicycle. And they couldn't get pregnant. And then they ended up going for an IUI consult. He did another seam analysis. And of course, all his numbers just plummeted because he spent hours on a tiny little bike seat riding up and down mountains and she was and then he would get in the hot tub afterwards to right. recover <laughs> of course <laughs> and she was pissed pissed so then she banned biking he was devastated but in they were a really funny couple but yeah it's hard and then sure enough like boop, his sperm camp went back up i mean and just these things i mean you know, we joke all the time you know get your laptop off your lap you know like put a pillow under there <laughs> so put on a desk you know you the key like we're not kidding they're really fragile and but they are able to rebound in a lot of cases, obviously not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, they are easily improved. Yeah. I always come back to this one story and it was a while ago, but I was at a fertility clinic and I was talking to the embryologist and we were having this conversation and he had just gotten the report in for a semen analysis. And he said, you're working with so-and-so. I said, yeah. And he said, I don't know if this is his report because it looks so good. Like he was looking at it. He's like, can't believe that this is his. Like, I think we messed up in the lab. Like, I think we mixed up the sperm. I was like, well, why don't we just call him and see what happened? Can we confirm? So we're on the phone with him and we're like, we just want to confirm if this is your sample because it's so different than what you've been giving for the last six months and dramatically different. And and the question we asked was like, well, what's different? He goes, he starts laughing. And we're like, well, what's so funny? He goes, well, for the last six months, I've been working my tail off. I've been on the road, hotels, flights, sales calls, whatever it is. I can't remember what he did. And eating poorly, airport food, stress, not a lot of sleep. So it was right around, it was in December when we were having this conversation. He goes, since Thanksgiving, I've been off for the rest of the year. So I've been home. I've been relaxing. I've been taking care of myself. I've been eating. I've been sleeping. I've been exercising. And that was it. So like to your point of how they're sensitive in both directions, they're, they're sensitive to be harmed with our actions. And at the same time, if we change our lifestyle, how impactful that can have in a very short period of time. So we were laughing about it, all of us in the end, because we're like, okay, we've got the right sample, but you need to keep doing this. This is what yes. you need to keep doing. <laughs> do you need a doctor's note for your boss? Like, no, you can't travel and do all the things until, until she is safely pregnant. Until she is safely pregnant. Yeah, no. So I hope everyone listening, the big takeaway, he has to do a semen analysis. He has to. Absolutely. Even if he's had children before, I'm sure you've had this instance as well, where I had a couple where he had two second marriage and second marriage for him, first for her. She, They were looking to become pregnant. He already had two preteen kids. So he was like, it's not me. I can get somebody pregnant. She spent thousands, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And he refused to get worked up. He was like, he was a little bit older and he said, I already have two, I'm fertile. I have two children. And I ended up getting out of that practice and lost her to the wind. And I was standing in line at a grocery store in the middle of a grocery store, similar to a Whole Foods. And in front of me is her with a baby. And I was like, oh my gosh. And she proceeds in the groceries. This is how angry and pissed she was. She said, finally, we went to IVF and we got a semen analysis done. And he had, his sperm count was like, less than a million. I mean, no. like near, oh. near zero. I mean, they were just horrified. And so she's in the, this check, like the whole, at this point, the whole grocery store was like, everybody heard the whole story. <laughs> <laughs> I turned around like, 
invested in the story as she's going through to say the whole time, all the money they spent with me, with acupuncturist, massage, you know, all this stuff. And then they did IUI and, or excuse me, they jumped right to IVF because of age. And, and so she, she was able to become pregnant, in fact, twice. But if she would, if they would have just backed up years prior, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars prior and said, oh, this sperm count is really, really, really low. We'll focus on you both, but he absolutely needs to be focused on, or we do need to jump right to uh, something IUI, IVF, something more concentrated. And do it sooner. And do it sooner, the amount of heartache, but you could just, the bitterness coming, the anger seeding through her in the grocery store line. I was like, oh my gosh. (laughs) Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So just because if you are in a new partnership and he already has children, it doesn't matter. If it's been some time, I always say we're going to have it retested. Yes, everything, everything. So actually, that leads me to the next question. At what point, how do you tell or decide somebody IUI, IVF? Like, when do you sort of pivot from the all natural way? Yeah, I prefer to, I can't say it's always the case because some couples will come to us while they're in those procedures looking for support. But for me, my preference is to be able to do the evaluation, have an understanding for what the root issues are, have a plan in place to support those things. And then once we've given that a little bit of time, then the conversation I typically have is, let's draw a line in the sand. Because I like to do this for two reasons. I don't want you asking the question every month, like, what do we do now? And I think it's important that we've got a line in the sand where we can reevaluate and understand where we go from here and we can decide if that's where we're going to go. And so that's a conversation that I have with them. For some, it's three months, for some it's six, for some it's 12. It just depends on the circumstances, how old they are. Again, family planning and the time frame piece of everything. But I would say for most couples, we like to give somewhere between three to six months, if possible. It's not always possible, but if possible, that would be ideal. And then we reevaluate where we're at and decide, do we keep going down this path because we're seeing good results and it's just a matter of time? Or is now based on whatever variables, is it now time for us to add in something else like insemination or IVF? I always prefer to start with insemination unless they've already done it. But even then, because now physiologically, hopefully they're different and things have changed that might have a bigger chance of being successful and then progressing to IVF. If they're older and we're talking about different circumstances, then we might bypass that and move on. That makes sense. And then I just have one last question before we wrap up. Egg freezing. How often are you hearing about egg freezing in your practice or getting asked about? So egg freezing versus embryo freezing? Yes, actual. Yes. So egg first. Yes. Right. So I hear about it quite often. And the only, really the bigger issue that I have with egg freezing is not that we're freezing our eggs. It's the viability of those eggs when we go to thaw them later. And embryos are more stable and the thaw rate for embryos is like 99%. So if you freeze 10 embryos, the, lot, the odds of getting those 10 embryos to be thawed and be able to use are really is really high, right? We're more likely to get all 10. When we're looking at eggs, they're way more sensitive. And so the likelihood if we have 10, that we're going to be able to thaw, fertilize, and grow those embryos, we're looking at like, that's a big difference, right? Huge, yeah. And so I always tell everyone, Obviously, if you don't have a partner and you're just trying to preserve your eggs, we're going to preserve your eggs. And in the last two or three years, I've actually seen that number increase quite a bit. But if there's a potential, if there's an option to be able to create embryos instead, 
you have a partner that you really believe in or whatever the circumstances are, then I always push for that and recommend it for the reasons that I just said. And I actually have a woman I'm working with right now. She's in a relationship. She's not quite sure where it's going to go from here. And so she for sure wants to freeze her eggs, which we're going to do or she's going to do. But I think her and her partner right now are talking about also freezing embryos just in case their relationship keeps going and it's viable. But there's a lot of legal documents that need to be there's, I was like signed with that one. But yeah, we've all seen that modern family actress who was going through that with her ex-husband. Yes, that's good. OK, thank you. I've, that, I've been meaning to ask about that egg freezing, embryo freezing. All right. So given that this is the Root Cause Medicine podcast, we've been talking all things fertility. What are the top like two, maybe three things you want to leave everybody with here today? Practical, tactical. I think that the most important thing is find someone who's going to support you, who's going to listen to you, and who's going to work with you to really find the causes, the issues of what's going on. That's number one, because all too often we don't get that. And I think that's a huge no-no with any health issue. But with fertility, as we're talking about today, I think that's a big one. So we need to find someone who's going to support us. And, and I also said in that, the support and listen to us, because all too often they're just pushing their agenda and not yours and not working with you as a team. And I want someone who's going to be a team with you to support you through that process. So that's number one. And number two is believe in yourself. Continue to have hope and belief in yourself because every conversation you have up until now is Someone's just taking away that belief and that hope in your ability to conceive. And I don't believe that's true. I believe that we can still do it. We might need a little hope, a little help. We might need a little bit more support and maybe a different path to get there. But I 100% believe that we can all do it with the right support that, that we get. I love it. I love talking to you. This is amazing. <laughs> Where can everybody find you? Tell them all the places because you know you're just going to be a fan favorite. Um, so the easiest place that I love is my YouTube channel, Fertility TV. I typically put out a new video every week. And then Instagram, Facebook, and just a little bit on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> but I typically go by the Fertility Expert. Fertility TV is my YouTube channel. And you could always go to my website, marksclar.com. Amazing. Dr. Mark, thank you so much for being on the Root Cause Medicine podcast today. It has been an absolute pleasure. You've dropped a million gems and I'm just so glad you're here. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.